Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zaslavsky. Last time I had a frog in my throat, and now a horse has jumped in there. Lame-o. But <laughs> the show will go on and you will enjoy it, eh? This is episode number 108. Well, hey, thanks for giving the old Smart and Simple Matters dealio a whirl, eh? If I sound rather Canadian right now, it's because my guest for this episode lived most of her life there, and I'm an honorary one as a Minnesotan. Oh, I hope people are getting it. Uh, before we get into the specifics of this nifty episode, I've, I want to give a thanks, a special thanks to our show's newest patron on Patreon, Jeff Sanquist, buddy, my favorite intentionally wandering friend, sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy. Thank you for your patronage. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for everything. You know, uh, with the exception of a somewhat ragged voice, which almost went away before finishing the last episode, then it came back strong and now it's starting to fade again. I have to say everything is groovy around these parts. Uh, Maybe the state of my voice and general gratitude has something to do with the new kindergartner who lives in my house, Mr. Grant Zeslovsky. He just started elementary school last week, and goodness, he'll tell you all about how he's in kindergarten, but not actually anything about kindergarten, if you just give him a chance. Today, though, I want to give a return guest a chance to chat for you. Shanna Mann, she really embodies the smart part of Smart and Simple Matters. And as you're going to hear, she's had a struggle with the prospect of not being the smart one anymore after a traumatic brain injury when she was 16. You know, I, I thought we'd just discuss that particular seed of awesomeness for a bit before moving on to other topics like her intentionally small bonsai business philosophy. Yet, we definitely took the long road through her injury, uh, its effects on Shannon and her family, and her surprising recovery when some folks, they just wanted to write her off as hopelessly disabled. It was worth the journey. It was worth the trip. Uh, I even imagine that uh, Shanna shares at least one thing in common with the former hip-hop phenom LL Cool J as she probably has her own variation of the song lyric from Mama Said Knock You Out that goes, don't call it a comeback. I've been here for years. That's a good song, by the way. At least I remember it being a good song. I haven't listened to it probably since 1999. I don't even know if I've listened to any new song since like 2002. Uh, In reality, though, Shanna's mama almost got knocked out for life when she too suffered a traumatic brain injury six years before Shanna did. Man, I just have to say, there is strength in the man family, and I want you to get some of it too. So first, we discussed how Shanna got left on the side of the road with her traumatic brain injury after rolling her car end over end 10 times. Then we get into things like what it's like to have zero motivation and not even know it, uh, how she systematically mapped what she knew to fill in the gaps from her injury. Uh, Ultimately, we explored how to cultivate a mindset of non-attachment without compromising your actual mind, why most folks don't consider the benefits of a bonsai business that's intentionally small, and how to strategically Use your constraints to pole vault over your obstacles. I believe you and I are ready for this verbal trip together. So, here we go. If you're into cultivating, pruning, or admiring your right-sized bounty, have I got a treat for you. 
My guest for this episode is back for a second chat, and it's my business-savvy, garden-loving, good friend, Shanna Mann. She's been called the Yoda of the mastermind group we're both in, and perhaps more importantly to you, she helps online entrepreneurs grow their businesses sanely and sustainably. Shanna is into bonsai businesses, businesses that are intentionally small but still hearty, vibrant, and full of impact. If you want your constraints to become your best opportunities, if you want a weakness to become a superpower, we have a groovy conversation for you. Shanna, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Sweet. It's been too long. Too long. Yeah, we are just, it's been a long time. I'm really enjoying these round two conversations with people who it's been years, literally years Mm -hmm. since the last time that we had a chat. And we've evolved, the topics that we're into have evolved. Our mm-hmm. relationship has grown and evolved, so it's a different dynamic than before, and I know that whatever it is that we talk to, it's going to be a bit free-flowing. It's going to be groovy. Mm-hmm. Well, we teased last time. I, originally, I thought, I'm just going to skip the seeds of awesomeness, which is <laughs> something about one or two experiences or the environment that you grew up in the youth that helps us understand who you are now. I thought, I'm just going to skip it. We did it in episode 39, our original one, your return guest, people get it, but we teased people with a story about your traumatic brain injury in episode 39, and we didn't actually get into it. It's really important context, and I think that we should resume the seeds of awesomeness there. What do you say about that? Alrighty. So I guess to start, you had a traumatic brain injury. I will let you take it from there in terms of how it happened, where it happened, and maybe we'll get into the implications of that in terms of how your relationships have changed, how you've had to systematize your life a little bit better. But let's take us back to, um, to, the, to the feel, to the look of how it happened. Okay. Well, the first thing that I have to share is that I'm not the first one in my family to have a traumatic brain injury. My mother actually was brain injured when I was 10 years old in a livestock as- accident and uh, she really didn't get back to normal, you know, until I was about 15. And so during that time, I saw, you know, what brain injured people go through. And of course, you know, we worked as hard as we could to to help her and treat her and learn as much as we could about brain injuries, you know, like you like you do when someone in your family has a debilitating illness. And so um, when I got brain injured when I was 16, I kind of knew what I was getting into. So so here's the story. So I had just got my license like three weeks previous. Um, Your driver's license? My driver's license, yes. Um, and this would be like a car driver's license, not the trucker's license that I later got. <laughs> Teaser. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was – it was like um, an August day. My dad had sent me into town to pick up some parts for the tractor or the baler or something like that. He was haying. And on the way home, I um, passed by the ranch where my siblings were, rather two of my siblings, were at a 4-H event. And 4-H, if you don't have 4-H in your area, it's like Future Farmers of America. Mm -hmm. It's like a livestock thing. So anyways, I dropped by um, and my brother said, I'm sick of this. I want to go home. And so I picked him up and I was going to also pick up my little sister from a volleyball trip. Um, so I was like making the rounds of the, of the neighborhood, so to speak. It was like, it was going to be like a hundred mile round trip or so. Right. Because Anyways, you're in Western Saskatchewan in Canada yeah. on a ranch, mm-hmm. you're not near a big city. Yes. Yes. It was 45 minutes to Shaunavan where I picked up the parts, then came back. And then it was going to be a further 25 minutes or whatever to go pick up my sister. And then come back to the ranch with the parts so that my dad could keep working. So halfway home, I there's this really, really big hill. It's like the only hill in Saskatchewan. <laughs> and there is uh, gravel roads get this, this thing called washboarding when somebody hits the brakes on them. And it creates this rumble strip effect. And what happened was I hit the washboard going too fast and basically lost control of the car, fishtailed, and then rolled all of the way down the hill. Like, we stopped just before the creek at the bottom. So the cops counted it. They were like, that's 10 end-to-end rolls. Um, they were they were actually kind of impressed anyone survived. 
So my, I was knocked unconscious on the steering wheel. My brother was, for some reason, belted in the back seat. And I'm not sure why. He was only a year younger than me. I think it was probably just because he wanted to lay down and sleep or something. And uh, so I was knocked unconscious. He wasn't. He climbed out, hauled me out, and then left me there on the side of the road while he ran to the nearest neighbor's farm to get help, which was like about a mile away. And uh, then I came to on the hillside with nobody around. Hmm. My glasses were off. Not really sure what happened. Um, And I thought I had both siblings with me. I thought I had both my brother and my sister with me. And when I couldn't find anybody, I was pretty freaked out. But I had all my bits attached. You know, I wasn't dead. Um, I didn't have any, you know, back or neck injuries at that time that I found. And so when I eventually went to the hospital, they kind of took x-rays. And since nothing was broken, they sent me home. And I remember at the time being like, well, that's stupid because you don't know what kind of bruising is happening on my brain from an x-ray. But like, I also didn't want to stay at the hospital. So we went home and they did that thing, obviously, that you do with concussions where you wake a person every hour to make sure they're responsive. Mm -hmm. So what people don't realize about brain injuries is that the brain doesn't die all at once. I mean, unless you lose access to oxygen, your brain doesn't die quickly. It dies Hold on. What do you mean by the brain dying? So you have a traumatic brain injury and you're talking about a part of your brain literally just ceases functioning completely and never resumes functioning? not, no, not parts of it. Okay, when a brain cell dies, it does not get regenerated. Uh, you can't, You start life with a certain number of brain cells and you don't get any more. Um, so, but, I mean, we also are, are somewhat oversupplied. Like, it's not this that hokey thing where you only use 5% of your brain, but it's like your brain could run much more efficiently if it had to. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens, um, what happens when a when a brain bruise spreads, essentially, is very similar to what happens when you lose access to oxygen, which is that, you know, in the, in the lack of, with the lack of oxygen, the brain cells just sort of suffocate and then they die. And similarly, as the swelling in the brain increases, certain areas of the brain just get smothered. And so brain um, injuries happen over a period of days. And to be fair, I think I probably hid that aspect from my parents because I was like, I cannot possibly be brain injured. You know, I'm the smart one. I kind of faked it for a while until like Saturday morning I woke up and I couldn't dress myself. What do you mean? You just had a physical inability to put your arm through a shirt sleeve or I, you couldn't get out of bed? I didn't know what clothing was for. And I didn't know how to manage it. So, like, if my mom, um, you know, held up a T-shirt and said, okay, put this over your head, she would put it over my head. Then she's like, okay, get your arm through there. And I could manage that. But, like, faced with pants, I didn't know to put my legs in them. I didn't know to stand up so that they would go up my legs or to pull them up my legs. And for some reason, buttons were, like, impossible I had no idea what the function of buttons were or what to do with them. So, so you, you then, were putting on your clothes just because your parents said that you needed to. But uh, from a functional perspective, you didn't understand why you needed to be something other than naked? It was, yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like I'm wandering around bare-ass naked, but I wasn't. I was just sort of like, huh, I'm awake. And then, like, there would be a long period of time where I thought absolutely nothing and then be like, I should be doing something. Hmm. And then there would be another long pause where it's like, I should get up. And then there would be another long pause where it's like, why? (laughs) So it's super surreal and it sounds absolutely um, mind-blowing when you explain it to somebody because it's like most people don't ever really think what it is like to be in a life where you feel no compulsion to do much of anything. 
I guess it's not mind blowing if you think about your brain blowing and your brain yeah. swelling up. And you mentioned that uh, if it, things from a from a scientific perspective, parts of the brains get smothered. Were there certain mm-hmm. parts of your brains that were smothered, and that was directly responsible for this completely new experience that you had as a human? Yeah, like uh, a lot of the damage was on the frontal. Like I knocked myself unconscious on the steering wheel. So a lot of the damage was to the frontal lobe and that governs executive function and and what we would think of as like all of the higher order brain stuff, you know? So for a long time, like I couldn't reason or if I did reason, it was very, very slowly. And I was always losing track of where I was in the reasoning process. Then I would have to start over. Um, uh, an example that my family still talks about to this day is like in an effort, in an effort to kind of keep me functional, they like kept giving me chores. So at one point my chore was to like, this is like a month or six weeks or maybe even two months after the accident. They said, okay, we're going to go to this event. We need you to bake something for the, the lunch. Like in my area, quite often, like everybody will bring a snack to have after an event. So I was supposed to make a loaf of some kind, um, coffee cake. And following that recipe was so hard, <laughs> so hard. And I was like just in tears of frustration trying to like work out how to measure things, how to mix things. In fact, I got bored partway through the mixing process and I just dumped it all into the loaf pan. And when we cut the cake later that day, it turned out there was a whole egg inside of it. Oh boy. <laughs> um, what, we'll are you, what are your parents thinking at this point in time? It's two months after your injury. W- what are they talking about are they trying to take you to certain specialists or they're they've almost not written you off but basically thought that this is some kind of permanent state that you were going to be in for the rest of your life how how are they trying to help you at that point well the specialists mm, told my parents that i would probably never live independently again which my mom is a lot like me where if you tell her something is going to be that way she just refuses to accept it and so it was like that will never happen (laughs) She will be independent again. And because we had that like collective experience with traumatic brain injuries, we had seen her come back. Over five um, years, though. You said that over, she was injured when she was 10 and she didn't really come back no, no, until she was 15. No, she was injured when I was 10. Oh, oh, OK. So for the next three or four years, she slept all of the time and she was extremely sensitive to light and noise. And so, um, you know, me and my four siblings kind of ran ourselves, you know, dad was, dad was around because being a rancher, he works from home. So, um, you know, we weren't raised like little hellions, but we, we definitely like, we came home in the afternoons from school and we would do our own homework and we would make our own dinner and we would clean, we would do the chores and we would stay quiet because any noise was extremely painful to my mother. So, so seeing that happen and like knowing what we were in for was for me, of the little like what what you could charitably call thinking I was able to do, um, that that was useful to know what I was in for, to know what was going on in my brain. What kind of capacity did you have for coming back? What experiments did you do or um, what conversations did you have with your mom who had been in the unfortunate place of been there, done that, where you got to the point where we could start to resume normal human behavior? Um... My mom, my mom has a background as a nurse, and uh, she was extremely patient. And like I said, I think she knew what she what I was going through. Um, but I didn't really interact with people. Uh, I couldn't interact with people because, like, everything going on in my brain was about five times slower than everything else that was going on around me. There was this one episode where, like, my uh, mental health caseworker had come all of the way out to the ranch to like see what kind of state I was in. And I think it had something to do with like assessing what kind of a insurance payout I was going to get. And I remember they were trying to question me about my abilities. And my dad cracked a joke at some point and the conversation passed on as it does. And like, 
family lore says it was like 25 minutes later when I finally started cracking up and I couldn't stop. Mm. Um, and I remember like being, uh, very, I, I would sit, my mom has this old rocker in the corner of the kitchen dining room area. And I would just sit there and rock for hours and hours on end. And like, it's for all, it's for all the being brain injured is exactly like meditating. It's so mindless. I mean, <laughs> it shouldn't probably um, be a surprise to anyone that it's mindless, but but it, I think it would be a surprise to people about how serene it is, because you you literally can't maintain any kind of concerns. Well, a lot of people when they practice meditation, they do it to be mindful. There are mm-hmm. still thoughts that are going through their head. They understand them. They're having them pass along. They're acknowledging them. Maybe they're even playing with them uh, while still being really mindful about the silence that they find themselves in. But for you, it was. It sounds like you're just you're drifting. You're wandering for hours at a time. And I get the sense of tranquil tranquility that comes along with that too. Did that? What kind of byproduct did that have on your other? your other time when you weren't just sitting in a chair rocking back and forth for hours on end. I know you as this incredibly clever, strong woman who is funny. And unless I already knew your backstory, I would have zero idea that you ever were in this state. I'm trying to Mm -hmm. reconcile between the person that I know right now and who you were back at age 16. How did you start to progress towards a path to, to being able to be this awesome person that you are. I could talk about this extremely in depth because it is a, it is a really interesting story in the sense that like, no, um, it's, it's, I'm going to, I'm just going to be arrogant here and be like, it's truly impressive, uh, that I was able to do what I've done and that I just happened to be lucky enough to know what was going on going in. So the first thing about brain injured people is a lot of the time the tendency is like the brain is dead uh, you know, that time of the life is over. Don't, you know, uh, just just let them do whatever they're able to do and, you know, help them create a life that within those limitations. And what we have now discovered um, and we're, it was just starting to be discovered at that time, but now it's much more secure in the literature, is that the brain will not heal exactly because, like I said, once the brain cells are dead, they're dead. But the brain is able to sort of sort of like the internet the whole idea of the internet was that it was decentralized and that if you couldn't get through the main routing areas it would just the packets of information would just kind of ping around until they found a way to their destination and so with brain injured people what you have to do is keep trying keep trying keep trying keep trying to tell the brain that what you really want is for them to find a way to accomplish what you want them to do And so you can imagine this as being like in the waking world, I'm basically this vegetable who sits in the corner of my mother's kitchen where she can keep an eye on me and rocks all day, sometimes humming to myself. Um, Whereas inside of my brain at a much slower pace, I was reconciling what was going on, which is that I knew that I was not able to interact in the world in a meaningful way. However, I still had something in my brain. Um, therefore, the first thing I needed to do was to figure out what I still knew and then work backwards to fill in any gaps in the knowledge that I had lost. So being a very thorough and orderly sort of person mentally, all I did was I sort of went down the like basically the Dewey Decimal System and was like, okay, what do I know about English literature? English literature started with Beowulf in like I think about the 14th century and and I would just move forward through everything I knew which you know because it's 16 everything you've done is within the context of the school system for the most part so what you know is still very codified so that was relatively easy and what I did was just sort of and I don't want to say I don't want to suggest that this was like something where I just like flipped through a bunch of pages mentally because it was a very laborious product process of just like working through each you know each subject matter and figuring out what I knew and what I still knew and how I knew it and figuring out like 
what was most interesting was like the holes in my knowledge where I would be like, okay, there, there should be something here because I know that there's something before it and there's something after it. Okay. So there's something here that I'm missing. What am I missing? And so I would just sort of try to wake, I would try to chew on it to try and figure out if I could like maybe lift the corners and, and peek around and try and sort of scare the association up. So that was like my inner life. <laughs> and it, it's, it seems incredible that I could be a vegetable on the outside and still have this rich experience on the inside. Could you um, communicate but I, that you were having this rich experience on the inside? No. Or everybody treated you just like a uh, uh, vegetable rocking in a chair, humming to herself? Yeah. Nobody knew it because like, years, I couldn't how communicate. How many years did this go on? Actually, I started improving after four or five months. Like my parents basically trained me to get dressed and, um, you know, feed myself. Although like I would sort of just forget I was eating and stop feeding myself. Right. Like this was, this was what, what was the most difficult is because I stopped, I would forget purpose essentially. Uh, if it, if it involved the outside world, because that executive function that, you know, then this, then this, then this, then this, I would always get derailed. Um, so I started improving throughout the rest of that year and I went probably, probably in hindsight, this was somewhat irresponsible, but I went back to school the following semester. Um, but that was, it was so loud and so bright and so overwhelming that it basically set me back. (laughs) Um, because my history teacher called my mother in and she's, he's like, she just sits there and she sits there throughout all my classes. She doesn't like get up and move from classroom to classroom. She just sits there. And she's, she's like, I know, but like she's, she wants to go to school. <laughs> um, because I would hear the bell ring and I would sort of notice the classmates leaving and I would think I should get up. And then I would just shut off again. Well, so. Well, yeah. when it comes to another kind of, this is, this is fascinating. Boy, we could go deep into I know I'm sorry like to explore no this is great I mean talking about the the meditative effects and I wonder what all the yeah this has informed your life in so many different ways but uh, a different kind of leaving as opposed to the classroom leaving the country I know you came to the United States a few years ago uh, when you did did you have to petition your parents or um, were you fully restored at that point in time where you could do everything that you needed to do and you could make decisions for yourself and navigate the world properly? Or did your folks just not that you were, you were legal age, so you didn't have to ask their permission to leave and mm-hmm. go to the United States. But what was that conversation like with your family when you said, hey, guess what? I am leaving Saskatchewan and I am heading to Virginia. How do you like that, folks? Huh. Well, I like I got better in the sense that I had terrific coping mechanisms and I actually managed to graduate with my class uh, a year and a half or later. So I was, by the government standards, considered cured, independent. Um, there was a really funny there was a really funny episode with the assessment uh, where they there was like a final assessment two years after the accident. Uh, where they were basically going to give me my my lifetime rewards of like how what percentage of disabled I was, and um, so I went in there and they did the assessment and I blew them out of the water. At one point, at what at one point the assessor was like, um, there was like a bunch of random sort of general knowledge questions, and he was like, "Tell me." about Dr. Faustus or whatever, or tell me what Faust is. And I was like, do you mean the book, the play or the opera? And he looked at my mom like, what are we even doing here? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I managed to, um, basically revamp a lot of knowledge and rebuild simply because I was just doggedly determined that first of all, I was a smart one. I didn't know what I was going to be when I wasn't the smart one anymore. And that was difficult to grapple with. And eventually I was like, well, if I'm head injured, there's really not a whole bunch I can do about it. But at the same time, uh, and this is where the non-attachment comes in. It's like, well, okay, nothing really matters. 
what I do, like, like what, whatever will be, will be. But I would like to see if I could do this, if I tried. And I, that is, that is probably the thing that came out of this the most, which is like, I I don't have a lot of attachment to the outcomes in the way that other people seem to get really invested in them because I'm like, this is kind of a game because like on a certain level, nothing you do, you know, is really, you're not, you're not really responsible for anything in the sense that like probability wise, there's just so many variables that the isolating everything down to your personal volition is kind of ridiculous. Um, But it's sort of like, but this is kind of what I think would be a cool outcome. And I'm just going to see if I can try to do that. So even though I think you probably think of me as a fairly, you know, serious uh, person from a, from like a, just an orderly achievement of my goals perspective, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I really don't, um, I don't get really attached to them in this, in the sense that like, it's like go big or bust. It's just like, I'm going to try for this and I'm really, really going to try for this, but I'm also pretty sure that there's dozens of variations of the outcome that would be equally acceptable to me and kind of cool. And I'm basically just going to go out there and see what they are. And so it's really reinforced this attitude of curiosity and play, which I think doesn't really come through for me to other people because I do really seem quite focused on my goals. And so, uh, so getting back to your question about coming to America, I actually didn't tell anybody. I just went. Wait, so you, <laughs> your family woke up one morning and they're like, hmm, I wonder where Shanna is this morning. Well, actually, they, um, there was like a period of about two months where I just kind of dodged phone calls and emails. And eventually I was like, okay, well, I guess I better tell them. The book business is going pretty well uh, because I knew that they would freak out because first of all, like our family, we're, you know, salt of the earth people. We don't travel a whole bunch. Uh, we don't we don't go places, especially not international places. And we certainly don't do it because, you know, some person you met on the Internet seems like a cool guy and has an idea for a business. Oh, right? so this is what happened with your now husband, Chris. You, yes. you met him on the Internet and he's like, hey, baby. Uh, oh my god! You, you didn't know this story. <laughs> I <laughs> I know parts of it too. How did we How I, did we miss this? I would like to learn a little bit. Okay, so Chris, you're not a husband. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of years says, "Hey, baby, uh, I know you're over <laughs> in Saskatchewan, and I'm over here in Virginia. But uh, would you like to start a business and you know maybe like uh, become romantically involved and create a life <laughs> together? This is how it goes down. No, no. Um, it it is even more. Uh, unbelievable than that. Uh, so what happened was I was freshly divorced and preparing to go into the oil patch, like go back to the oil patch that is because I was like, well, I'm freshly divorced and, um, like my other businesses are not super feasible, uh, with like post-divorce finances. Uh, so I had been shuttering them. And, why and so not I was like, I'm just my adrenal glands again, going back to the oil pay- patch and working. My- I was, there's, yeah. there's a great article, actually. I'm going to link to it. You wrote a guest post on uh, uh-huh. the Putty Lake blog years ago. That was when I first learned about your time in the oil patch. Wow. Uh-huh. Kind of crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> it was insane. Yeah. But I told myself I would be smarter the next time around. Uh, so anyways, uh, Chris and I had been like pen pals for a number of years at that point uh, because I had been working in the oil patch and in the trades, and I was just starving for mental stimulation. And he has he basically just spends his entire non-working hours reading and he has a tremendous and voracious appetite. So he would just pass me really good articles and books to read. And that kept my sanity while I was working uh, in a blue collar world because um, the intellectual side of me just was not getting stimulated. So anyways, he was trying to persuade me not to go back into the old patch. And I think as some sort of a hail Mary, he was like, so my parents, are doing this thing where you like buy books and then you sell them on Amazon and they're making pretty good money at it. And they think that I should do it too. And I don't know anything about business and you know something about business. So why don't you come down here and we'll run the business together? And you said, yeah. And I was like, well, why not? Well, yeah, basically I hedged my bets and I was like, well, worst come to worst. Uh, my parents will never 
say, no, we won't pay for your plane ticket back to Canada. <laughs> so I was like, there's really, I mean, worst case scenario, as long as he's not a serial killer, like there's no downside here. Um, worst, you know, the worst thing is I'll spend six months in the United States and, uh, blow through the investment money and then I'll turn around and come back and still go back to the oil patch. The oil patch will always be there. So it was one of those, like, you know, I had nothing to lose and nothing better to do. So away I went. But I also knew that, um, telling people this was going to present a ferocious argument. Mm. So I did not do that. And so then, of course, when I got down here, we were basically business partners for a while. And then I was like, you know what? This isn't risky enough. Let's fall in love. <laughs> right. Rather than <laughs> because that's how I roll. We're already in business together. What can make what can ratchet up the risk anymore? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's that's pretty much how it's going. And um, but that's, so, yeah, then that's eventually the we never that you have. No, Go that was it. the thing is that I can I can tell you and I, I don't know why this is probably some sort of expertise that I picked out somewhere along the way, which is I can tell you r- roughly speaking how long it will take for business to be profitable. And I had this sort of consulting business for a long time that I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to slowly build this up through referrals because there's really no um, there's really no better way to get a good target market together and to have trustworthy results than to build up through referrals. But um, it's also going to be something that's going to require years before it's really viable as a, as a solid business. Like, I'm big on security. I know it doesn't sound like it, but I hedge my bets. I know you do. (laughs) As far as your book business goes, you've expanded that to get into other Mm -hmm. things to resell on Amazon. And I know you're Mm -hmm. quite adept at it. But as far as publicly facing things, you know, if somebody were to visit shannaman.com, which I would recommend that they do, Change Catalyst is the name of the website right now. Uh, they would see nothing about your book selling business. They would see nothing about oh, no. Chris or the fact that nope. he's your business partner and or much of your backstory at all. They would see the headline would be, hey, are you a Bonsai business owner? Do you mm-hmm. run a business or do you want to run a business that's intentionally kept small enough to be manageable? Hey, guess what? I can help you out with that. <laughs> Why did you decide to make that your publicly facing business? Well, I don't think that enough people seem to realize that there are options other than the ones that get a lot of publicity. And growing a business that doesn't get big seems to be one of them, which which just boggles my mind because um, like the stress in, involved and the complexity involved in running a big business is not something that most of us would ever choose for ourselves. And yet everybody who's getting into entrepreneurship doesn't seem to recognize that that is the inevitable result if you do what all of the experts tell you to do, which is that your business will get big. Cash flow, cash flow, growth, growth, uh-huh. more growth. Revenue, revenue. Yeah. Six figures, seven, eight. <laughs> is that after tax or before tax? Oh, my God. Is that God. after paying your employees or before paying your employees? employees? Oh, that I know, drives I me insane. On that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so that, so that's the thing is like a bonsai business is a business that is intentionally small. And I, everybody, I think was recognizes the phrase, you know, if you're not growing, you're dying. And that's true, but everyone conflates growing with growing bigger. And so the best visual I could come up with was the idea of a bonsai, which is literally a full sized, uh, tree species that is constrained to a small pot so that it can never grow any bigger than that pot. And then it is artfully designed to fulfill a certain vision of the bonsai artist. And that just struck me as such a poetic analogy. This is the shallow pot metaphor that I've seen you write about before. Um, Mm -hmm. It's because you put the tree in a shallow pot and you carefully prune it. That's why it stays the way that it is. It's not a dwarf. Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And that's the thing is the is that a lot of people don't want their business bigger to get much bigger. If, the, if 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 anyone sat down and actually asked them, which is part of the problem, they don't want their business to get very much bigger than what they can handle themselves. 
and they don't want it to get very complex and they don't want to like take over an entire market or an industry. They don't want to go global. They just want uh, to do what they love and make enough money that they're comfortable. And if they can impact the world in some small way, that would be awesome. And my argument is that you can have all that. You don't have to grow big, but you have to realize that you're not trying to grow big and that that changes your strategy some. Okay. So what kind of trade-offs do I need to make if I decide to have a deliberately smallish bonsai business? Well, for starters, you have to look critically at a lot of the advice that especially online businesses get given. I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with this concept, but for instance, a lot of people will say like, I'm going to build you know, a blog and I'm going to have 100,000 readers a month and some portion of those readers are going to get on my email list and then I'm going to send them, sell them products. And that's really cool, except for the fact that you have to get uh, really big just to go small. And then you have to get even bigger than that to go big. Whereas if you had some, uh, like, and it's not that you can't have a bonsai business doing that, um, especially in, in a niche subject, but it would be a lot easier if you had some sort of a service to offer, uh, especially a productized service, which allows you to decouple uh, time from income. But but starting off small would be a service because you would need, especially if you did higher cost services, um, you know, websites, consulting, things of that nature, you would be able to make your monthly nut with far fewer people in your audience. And once you're like, okay, well, how can I make this work with fewer people in my audience? All of a sudden, you're like, oh, well, I just need to be doing this differently. You know, whatever your business is, um, rather than selling, you know, $5 knitting pattern downloads. You you have to find a business where you can you can get a relatively committed amount of people to spend a relatively large amount of money. Mm-hmm. And that's just one that's just one way to do it of course it's probably one of the easier ways uh, but it's just one way to do it but it, the way of thinking about it is like i just i don't want to be loud and splashy and big and spend a lot of time on social media so that everybody knows my name if a few people know my name and they know that i do good work that should after a while bring me enough people by word of mouth right I still want to have time to say, oh, I don't know, walk my son to kindergarten and pick him up every day, which is something that I just started doing two days ago as we record mm-hmm. this. Uh, I spend an hour in the morning and an hour and a half in the afternoon with my son, Grant, who's now in kindergarten. I can do that, and I can do that without freaking the heck out because, one, well, I work from home because I've crafted that kind of lifestyle for myself with the help of my wife and some other kinds of cool resources, and two, uh, I just have even before I knew of this concept of a bonsai business, when I quit my corporate gig uh, four and a half years ago, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted mm-hmm. businesses to support my lifestyle as opposed to making money to support the lifestyle that I felt like I wanted or that I felt like I needed. So there's mm-hmm. all kinds of... Uh, actually, for you personally, as a result of having your bonsai business, what have you experienced that you otherwise couldn't just in your general day-to-day life? It's hard to say. I have always had non-traditional jobs. It doesn't seem very strange to me that I should be able to like load the dishwasher in the middle of the day. Um, but one thing that was really nice was um, when I moved down here, Chris had a pack of four aging pit bulls because he used to work in pit bull rescue. And um, the, you know, as they got older and older, they had more health problems. And because of having my bonsai business, I was able to stay home you know, I mean, able to stay home. I had to stay home anyways, but I was able to really give them a lot of um, dignity towards the end of their lives as they got older and older and had to be walked more frequently. You know, it's really humiliating with the dog, for a dog who's been house trained for 10 years to start, you know, making messes on the carpet because he can't hold it. Um, And I was able to spare them a lot of that. So that's that's always great. Um, The other thing that's great is being able to spend a ton more time with my husband than a lot of traditionally uh, employed people get to do. And I'm hoping um, by shortly into uh, 
in the short term that I will be able to get him out of his part-time job as well. Um, and he'll be able to work with me full time. That would be pretty rad. And it would be awesome. Giving you more time to garden together and to enjoy the pool, at least during the summertime that you have, and mm-hmm. spend three hours trying to fix your filtration system and other <laughs> things that you get to do. Yeah, you, you're a bit of a do-it-yourselfer. So the overall theme that I'm getting here is, and I know this is one of the key things that you talk about and that you write about, is strategy under constraints. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of deliberate strategy that you craft and that you help other people craft, figuring out what are my constraints? What are the things mm-hmm. that are holding me back to a certain extent? But actually, yes, it can make things harder, but it can actually make things easier. I can turn mm-hmm. a weakness into a superpower. That's what we talked about back in episode 39. Um, I can realize that this enormous challenge that I had, the fact that I was sitting in a rocker for hours, humming to myself for months on end when I was in high school, (laughs) and that has actually been one of the things that has created me into the person that I am right now. It's given me the insight or the creativity in different ways to think about things differently, to act upon things differently, to systematize. That's one of the things that I love about you and that as people explore your world more that um, they'll get a flavor of along with some... You're like me in that you don't just focus on a singular thing. You like talking about things Mm -hmm. from a different angle. Maybe next time we'll talk about the post-work society, uh, what I call the post-growth economy or degrowth. That is a fascinating concept and I know we both have a lot of cool stuff to say. Is there anything practical or tactical that uh, you would like to suggest people do as a result of what you have just discussed with me? Any, any little action step that you would have people explore their own constraints and how they can use that to make things easier for them? You know, I think the biggest thing that holds people back is not realizing that they have options, that there's not just the one pathway through, through life and through certain decisions that they make. And I think if people did anything else, I would encourage them to find venues or avenues where they can be exposed to people who do things differently or in different ways, because that's what's going to, it's, you know, it's difficult to climb outside of your own bottle, but that's, what's going to expose them to the, you know, aha moment, the insight that says, Oh, I don't actually need to, do things that way. Like I don't have to grow my business. I don't have to upgrade my car every time, you know, every three years, every time I'm financially able to, you know, you can be like, you can be doing like unreasonable things like deciding to go and buy yourself an acreage and plant a big garden, even though, you know, you could never produce it for cheaper than you could buy it in an American grocery store. And, these sorts of things where you unschool your children, uh, which I think is a great idea for anybody who can manage it, because that is another way of just showing your kid how artificial so many of our constraints are. And the ones that are not artificial, the ones that are real, how you can basically use them to pole vault over your obstacles. All right. Well, yeah, the homeschooling and unschooling piece is something that I have talked about uh, for a number of episodes and haven't acted on, but that's something that is appealing to me. And who knows, someday I might pull the trigger on that one as well. Well, Shanna, this has been a, wow, story-rich episode (laughs) of... I I learned so much, and I know a lot of other people, whether they know somebody who's had a traumatic brain injury or perhaps they'll be listening in the future to try to understand what it's like, at least from your perspective, to, um, to be in that kind of position, to have a family history, unfortunately, of uh, having traumatic brain injury and seeing who you are, where you've come, and why you do what you do as a result of it. Wow. Wow. So where can folks find out more about you or hear more from you if they would like to check your world out a little bit more? The eponymous shanaman.com is where you can find me. I'm also at shanaman on Twitter, although I... I mostly just use it to forward my Instagram pictures. And the uh, there is a pretty happening, if you happen to be of the entrepreneurial mindset, there is a pretty happening uh, Facebook group that you get access to if you sign up for my mailing list. And uh, we basically call it the happy hour. We show up every Friday and we chill and kibitz and talk business matters, uh, bonsai business matters with people who get it who really, really get it and don't, you know, always try to sell their services and stuff. Kibitzing. Oh, that's something that I don't get enough of. 
Uh, my grandma is smiling down right now, just thinking, oh, he's talking about kibitzing. I'm glad that he remembers some of the Yiddish that I taught him. <laughs> well, Yiddish has enriched English so much. Yes, yes, it has. Well, I just want to make sure that people know Shanna Man, that's with two N's, S-H-A-N-N-A, M-A-N-N.com. I'll have links to all the stuff in the show notes that we talked about. Shanna, this was a treat for me, and I'm really grateful that we got a chance to have round number two on Smart and Simple Matters. So much fun. Sign me up for number three. All right. So what you, what you, what you think about that? Well, it's whack when you're jacked in the back of a ride with you know with your flow when you're out getting by. Believe me, what you see is what you get. And you see me? I'm coming off as you can bet. Well, I think I'm losing my mind this time. This time, I'm losing my mind. That's right. Said I think I'm losing my mind this time. This time, I'm losing my mind. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe I shouldn't drop uh, lyrics to the Beastie Boys, so what you want uh, when I sound like I do. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't just do it at all. It seemed appropriate based on the conversation and the vibe. Believe me, you will find no links to LL Cool J or Beastie Boys songs in the show notes for this episode, but you will find links to all the stuff Shan and I spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness at joelzeslowski.com slash SASM108. Remember, Shanna is at Shanna, S-H-A-N-N-A, man, M-A-N-N dot com. She is one heck of a person, as you've just heard, but also one heck of a writer. Even if this bonsai business thingy doesn't seem like your thingy, there's going to be something there for you. You will also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community. You'll find that at joelzeslowski.com slash support. Now, if you got something out of this episode, or maybe you just generally dig the show, as always, I would be grateful if you shared it. You can do me and your friends a solid, that's a favor in non-Joelish lingo, by sharing the show notes for this specific episode. Those are at joelzaslowski.com slash SASM108, or just generally communicating to your family, to your friends, to people you know on social media, that my flow is whack. And I occasionally, just occasionally, make you laugh, maybe right now, or uh, give you some kind of key insight with the help of my guests. Thank you for whatever you've already done, are about to do, and will do in the future. I am just so wicked grateful to you and for you. Well, that'll do it for now, A. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslowski. Now go simplify something. Hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet done.